to uh, Self-Care with Dr. Sarah. I'm Sarah R. And I'm Sarah B. And we're really excited to have a guest speaker today, uh, Dr. Omoa Shields. Really happy to be here today, too. Welcome, Omoa. So Omoa is a National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellow, right, who's partially at Harvard University and then partially at the University of California at Los Angeles. So Sarah and I were especially excited to have Omoa because in addition to being a person we really look up to, uh, Omoa is also a friend. And um, we thought a really good place to start for this interview maybe would be for Omoa to give a brief intro about herself mentioning the article that she just published on her blog about imposter syndrome. I thought that it was a wonderful article. Do you want to sum it up, uh, Omoa? Sure. Thank you. Um, so I have a bit of a uh, non-traditional background. Um, I started off in astronomy, getting an undergraduate degree in Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences from MIT. But I had also done a lot of acting in high school, and I found myself conflicted between wanting to become an actor and wanting to become an astronomer. And I did start a graduate program in astrophysics um, and did one year of that program, but really felt pulled to explore acting more deeply and had applied to acting grad schools and decided to leave the first PhD program in astrophysics and, and go out and get an MFA uh, in acting, which I did do, went to, the UCL, went to UCLA and, and got that degree. Um, but then I found my way back to astronomy many years later. I just fell in love with it. And when I made the decision to go back to graduate school a second time and, and complete my PhD in astronomy, I was consumed with imposter thoughts. Um, they started right away as soon as I started as a first year. And I think I had sort of a trifecta of, <laughs> of imposter thoughts because I, you know, I was a woman and, uh, predominantly, uh, male field. I was, I am an African American woman and I, uh, was an older graduate student starting. So I started graduate school at the age of 34. And so I was going to school with classmates who were 23 and, um, completely, had all of that physics knowledge uh, really under their belt, whereas I had forgotten a lot of it. So I felt like I just had to buckle down, and I had a lot of feelings of fear and insecurity and sort of not wanting to be that person that struggled. Every time I had an exam, there was just that fear of like, oh my God, I don't want to fail. Please don't let me fail. And it never happened, you know, and yet I was always afraid that it would. And that was the first clue that maybe there was something very disconnected between the fear and the actual reality. Um, and then I started to learn about this thing and the imposter syndrome. It was great to be able to put a name on it and to learn that so many people suffered from it and that I really wasn't alone. And, um, and then through this, you know, it's, I've, I've seen the evolution of the imposter syndrome for me. And thankfully it's really gone from being very dominant in my life to the point where I would sometimes be paralyzed with fear and just an overwhelming, like not wanting to, I remember the first time I gave a journal club talk uh, as a first year, I was in tears and my husband had to like drive me to school. <laughs> Normally I would get on the bus or, or walk and like, you know, I was having trouble like tying my shoes and, and just that <laughs> I would go deer in the headlights you know, when giving science talks during the question and a portion of the program, because as I say in this blog post, 
as an actor, there is something called a fourth wall. There's this invisible wall between the audience and the performer. And the audience does not cross that wall unless the performer invites them in. Mm. Um, but in science, that wall does not exist. <laughs> you know? And these questions fly at you during the talk, after the talk. And I was really afraid of just thinking on my feet. And I learned that that really was a skill that could be acquired just like any sort of athletic skill. And I, I talk more about this in the blog post. But it was really the, with the point when I started to be able to treat this affliction of the imposter syndrome, like a scientist would treat a testable hypothesis and gather evidence either in, in support or refuting this hypothesis, that was when I started to become aware of, of how how much it had sort of decreased in terms of its occupying the amount of space that it once did in my head. So it, it occupies a much smaller space in my head, although it has not gone away at all, um, but it's just like these sort of chirping birds as opposed to like, as I mentioned in the blog, like an elephant just sitting on my chest, you know? Well, I find, I find it remarkable that you ever at all suffered from the imposter syndrome. Cause when I look at all <laughs> the amazing things that you do, I feel the imposter syndrome and I'm just going to toot OMOS horn a little bit here, but you know, in addition to being an NSF fellow, you also have a fellowship from UCLA for your postdoc and she was a TED fellow, like no big deal. There's only a thousand applicants for, I don't know, like 10 spots. You know, I mean, she's one of them, you know? She's also in like a movie that was in Sundance festivals with awesome people. And it's just, you know, it's, need I go on? So it's, it's always heartening. It's always heartening to hear when, you know, someone else feels the same way despite, you know, what I think of almost as a laughable case, you know, like there's, like there's, how could you feel the imposter syndrome? But that's why it's so insidious is that, you know, everyone's looking at everyone else that way and we all minimize our own accomplishments and, and, you know, kind of remember the failures more than we do the successes maybe, or at least the successes don't have the same lasting stay with us. Yeah. You know, I'm glad also to hear that it seems like you're a recovering Sarah, Dr. Ballard um, on the line, <laughs> uh, first conducted an imposter syndrome workshop at the University of Washington. It wasn't her first time doing a, an imposter syndrome workshop, but I think it was the first time at UW that you did it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, a, it was really eye-opening for me because we had, um, I mean, there, there aren't very many people of color at, in our department at the University of Washington. Um, it's an incredibly supportive department. I just, I don't think I could have been a grad student anywhere else, but, um, but being in that classroom that we held the workshop in with predominantly, uh, you know, white students and postdocs yeah. and faculty and having faculty admit out loud that they mm -hmm. suffered from it and that when they got yeah. their positions, they didn't believe, <laughs> they thought that they'd fallen through the cracks and, you know. <laughs> Like that. I think. There, and was, then he, and there then, was a faculty member who won imposter syndrome bingo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, that's part of my imposter syndrome workshop is playing imposter syndrome oh. bingo. So if you've had such and such an imposter thought, you know, like um, they only like me because of my sense of humor, you know, is, is an example. Mm -hmm. Then you got to put a marker on that square and the first person 
who won bingo. I think what is like a tenured professor. Yes. Well, I won and, bingo and then... too when you did it, Sarah. I remember back. <laughs> <laughs> the very I remember, Sarah. I remember you won bingo also. I mean, no one's, Sarah, and... no one's trying to challenge that you are the imposter syndrome expert. <laughs> and both of you, Sarah's, like, I, I mean, like, even the fact that Sarah Ballard was admitting that she suffered from the imposter syndrome, I remember being like, no, there's no way. I like know, what you were yeah. saying. And Sarah, remember, like, when I, before I even knew you, I was slightly intimidated by you at conferences, you know? So this, it's so interesting it's so to hear weird. you talk yeah. about me in those terms too, because um, I feel the same way about both of you and, and just thinking that, wow, how I, how I am, my perception that other people have of me is very different mm-hmm. from the perception that I have of myself. And um, that has really helped to hear people who are generous with their compliments and praise and, observations, mm-hmm. um, to voice those observations to me. The other day I was at a meeting of, uh, the Banneker Institute that I'm helping out with this summer at Harvard. And there was someone in the room who had been on a, a panel for the NSF graduate research fellowship program that mm-hmm. I applied to. You should mention, and, uh, mention Omwa, what the Banneker Institute is. Yes. The Banneker Institute, it's a program developed by professor John Johnson here at Harvard. And it, uh, involves undergraduates from underrepresented groups in astronomy research, coursework, and social justice discussions throughout a 10-week period. And this is the inaugural cohort going on right now, and it's just incredible to be a part of this and to watch these students blossom and to watch the like relationships that are forged between them and to see how brilliant they are. And um, I'm just really honored to be like Harvard could not be more diverse right now at the CFA. <laughs> like there's just people, yeah. there's people of color everywhere, and it's a wonderful <laughs> experience. Um, but this individual uh, is also a TED fellow who happened to be there as a guest speaker. Mentioned to me that he'd been on a graduates the, the panel that decided who was going to get the graduate research fellowships from NSF back when I was a second year or whatever, and I applied. He let me know where I had stood on this on the ranking. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it was, okay, I'm just going to say it. He told me that I was number one on the ranking of the list <gasps> and wow. I had never, <laughs> wow. I had never heard that before. And, um, it was just wonderful. It was wonderful to hear him say that and to have like professor Johnson was there and said something like, I'm not at all surprised. And I was like, what? Like, oh, it just surprised. Surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? So it, uh, that, and that, that evidence, I mean, I have this, um, it's at home, but there, there's a, this sort of, we're all, we're talking about self-care here. And one of the ways that I've kind of taken care of myself around this imposter thoughts is, is gathering supportive quotes, mm-hmm. inspirational quotes and, um, sayings by people, women and other people who I admire, um, keeping track of like printing out the email from my PhD advisor telling me that I passed my qualifying exams, that I passed oh. my general exams. Like I actually printed out the first, the first, the email from the journal telling me that my you know, first ever first author paper had been accepted for publication. And I kept those sheets of paper in a folder. And then like, I have these quotes in a beautiful leather bound journal and like, I'm very visual. So I just, I, I pull that, those books and that folder out um, you know, throughout grad school, I did that a lot and like bought myself a graduation card the first year that I was there. Cause I'd gone to this orientation for the women's, um, 
it was an orientation for women who were returning to graduate school after a significant time away. And, and one of the speakers said, buy yourself a graduation card and sign it, you know, doctor, whatever, <laughs> and keep it with you so that when things get challenging, you can refer to it and know that one day that graduation card will be true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was able to see that manifest. So those are some ways that I was able to kind of help me you know, collect evidence and supportive words and surround myself with a supportive community that, that really reflected the complete opposite of what my brain was telling me. Oh, I, I wondered whether it sinks in. I don't know. I feel like sometimes that I have kind of a, a force field that keep, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> that keeps some really positive reinforcement from getting absorbed fully. So I, you know, yeah. I, I try to remind myself objectively, like you're saying, Omoa, of achievements that you could put down on paper or emails I could print out. And yet there's a part of the imposter syndrome, at least as I experience it, that's kind of really resistant to evidence, <laughs> you know, which is part of what I really liked about your article was that I, I long myself to bring a scientific lens to my own imposter thoughts and I find I feel very frustrated about it did, did it always just sink in when you would get a compliment did you feel the compliment I I have to admit that sometimes I didn't want to believe the compliment uh -huh. um or the first instinct was oh they're just being nice mm -hmm. you know like yeah. one of I think that was in your imposter bingo that like when you're given compliments do you say oh they're just being nice or when you're told that you gave a great talk at the end of the talk, do you think that they just said that to be nice? But it, it it happens more often than not that that I'm able to. I think it's just it's training myself in the same way that I've trained myself to be able to you know give a science talk and actually answer questions halfway coherently now. That like I'm able to, I can train myself to focus on the positive instead of the negative. To Maybe those negative thoughts will always sort of dance in and out of, of my brain pathways while I'm listening to a compliment, but I can choose which thoughts to focus on. You know, they might, they might come back, those negative thoughts, oh, he didn't really mean that, or she didn't really mean that compliment, but I can choose to say, well, what if she did? How about I just decide that I'm going to believe that she did? Mm -hmm. You know, like, what is the disadvantage there? I'm going to get an inflated sense of self-worth. <laughs> Is that such a bad thing? <laughs> like, I, I can live with that. I think I can live a lot better with that. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't see there's, there's no downside to choosing to believe the positive. Um, and there's definitely a downside to choosing to focus on the negative or to sort of invent a kind of imaginary justification for why someone said something and that that's why the scientific way of approaching this imposter syndrome seems to so far be helping me because I'm like well you know I, I'm the facts are the facts the facts don't lie um, it's like adding up you know adding up the expenses in a checkbook like those don't lie like I either have money for something or I don't mm -hmm. um, but how I feel about buying something you know that weaves in and out and, and, and this, it's the same thing with my feelings, they are, they completely can change with the song on the radio. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what hasn't changed is like, okay, this, this happened, this happened. Oh, this one, this person invited me to speak somewhere because they've heard I'm a good speaker. Hmm. 
This okay. person told you that you were the number one applicant on the NSF That's right. That person did not have to tell me that. They did not have to tell you that. Yeah, no, it's true. And Renee Logic also, who's a TED senior fellow, uh, gave an entire imposter syndrome workshop leading up to the TED conference, mm-hmm. because I think this is a prevailing oh, so uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> thing. Sure. Uh, you show up at the TED conference, and everyone are, and it was like CEOs and huge people, and then it was, and then we show up as TED fellows, and it's like, there's that feeling of, do I belong? Like, what mm-hmm. am I doing here? And she says that something that she's told people is, you're, you're in the brochure. <laughs> like, so you're supposed to be here. Like, keep coming back to that. You're you're in the brochure. <laughs> so They chose you out of a thousand people, <laughs> need I say. <laughs> it's interesting going back to your your folder that you keep with you. I do the same thing, only it's on my desktop. You can see it right here. It's called the Rainy Day Folder. And inside, I have, like, various things, like emails from people or, you know, I actually just have a funny uh, animated GIF in here as well, or a compliment about a talk, or, you know, various affirmations of from people that I have in kind of electronic record. So I don't have it in the physical, which is different. Like, both of them, both of them I think, are, are nice, but I do have it, like, on my computer, on the desktop, too. so that I can see it, you know, at any point. Um, That's fantastic. I still, I agree with Sarah, though. I do find it hard to take a scientific approach to recognizing the accomplishments. And I find that just when I think I'm getting a handle on the imposter syndrome, maybe, then, I don't know, I graduate and move on to something new and it comes right back, you know, or or in, in periods where you're suddenly the youngest thing on the totem pole in terms of, you know, academic, you know, if you're a new postdoc or a new grad student or a new junior faculty you know, and, and Sarah mentioned the even the tenured professor still imposter syndrome, but it seems to me that a lot of people feel a resurgence when they are going into something that they haven't been comfortable with. And I was wondering, uh, do you have any skills for dealing with that? Going into something new? Yeah. That, yes. Um, it's funny. I was just in, so the Banneker students had a panel today where, where they asked faculty to come and talk about what they look for in an advisee <laughs> sort of leading up to grad school and someone brought up the imposter syndrome and all of them said it never goes away mm-hmm. um, but one of them said uh, he said something about if you have if you didn't have the feeling that you know other people might be smarter than you or doing things better then that might be odd mm-hmm. because we're in a field that's so dynamic and everyone's functioning on such a high level that, you know, there's this, you know, whatever Maxwellian distribution and they're all, there are going to be people, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like Professor Johnson got up and drew a plot, you know, um, but, and then there were people, there was one professor who said, you know, cut off that tail. Yeah. There are going to be people that are smarter and, and perhaps more brilliant that they're always going to be those people mm-hmm. um, cut that tail off and, you know, let them go. <laughs> and then someone else was like, well, I wouldn't necessarily say cut the tail off. I would say learn from them and help use them to make, help you be better. You know, so there's all these different approaches. Um, I agree, I though, like, that, um, that... Go ahead. I don't know. I, I, my response in my mind when you were telling that story, Omoa, is that it's so easy for... It's so easy to think that we're objectively measuring our intelligence Mm -hmm. you know because your brain is telling you that you have a realistic handle on what you do and don't understand but 
I mean, I was just reading and retweeting a study recently that was kind of a graduate student's dissertation work in sociology about how women in particular really underestimate their math skills compared to their male peers who are really overestimating their math skills. And I had been just feeling that. You know, I, I probably came across the article only only 60 seconds since I, I was having this imposter thought about how bad I am at math, which is a common one. <laughs> statistics, right? <laughs> yeah, statistics. And then this one just came, this article floated up on my Twitter feed that said women underestimate their expertise at math, which is absolutely what I was doing in that moment. So to kind of imagine, I don't know, that survival of the fittest mentality that I think is really common in science, I think it presupposes that we have a realistic handle on our ability and that folks don't kind of suffer disproportionately from feelings of inadequacy. I don't know. That's so okay. I, I feel a response there where I have like a, an impulse to be more supportive than to kind of say like fight or flight or whatever, you know, or, or sink or yeah. swim, I guess is the, yeah. I agree. Um, mm -hmm. And in the same discussion, they were talking about how when they look for what they've noticed about their the best advisees are really not not the grades. They've had advisees who had excellent grades but had very little passion for research hmm. and very little um, initiative that they showed in terms of like wanting to ask a question and, and work on the answer. Whereas what was most important to all of them was the passion and the drive and the, and the interest in actually doing science. Because it's sort of getting at this thing about the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset, you know, that for a long time, I had that idea of like, well, I was good at math up until a certain point, And then it got really hard and I'm just not that good anymore. And so maybe that means I shouldn't be a scientist. Whereas what we're trying to teach these students in the Banneker Institute and what I try to instill in students that I talk to around the country is like, it's not about your inherent math or physics or chemistry skills. It's about how badly do you want this? Mm -hmm. Do you want this yeah. badly enough to work very hard to learn what you need to learn to be able to do what you want to do? That's all it comes down to. How much are you willing to work? I'm so glad you said that, Omar. That came up at Inclusive Astronomy, too, at that conference at Vanderbilt when folks were discussing what actually was predictive of success, success in this case being completion of the PhD program or whatnot, you know, what, and what folks think is correlated is like raw physics GRE score or something. I think that if you asked senior folks in our field, they would say, oh, physics GRE score or whatever. And it was way more grit. That was actually quantified yeah. in that study with Kayvon yes. Stassen, and I forget who the first author was, yes. where mm -hmm. grit is, uh, you know, where grit is kind of a, a word that encompasses a lot of ideas, including, like you're saying, stick to work ethic, independence, and that's just way more predictive of success than these other metrics um, yes. that, that we've been using, I think, may, uh, not, not foolishly, but, you know, maybe foolishly <laughs> for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the physics GRE means absolutely nothing in yeah. terms of predicting yeah. success as a scientist. Though, though the one thing that came up to me as you guys were talking about this is the imposter syndrome can also have the unfortunate side effect of making you doubt yourself enough to stop working or to stop going forward. It can, it can yeah. kind of counteract that grit. And I think that's where seeking help, you know, going, going to a therapist, talking with friends, being open about it, realizing that everyone has it is so important because 
I found in my first year, I'm a pretty determined person. Um, people have called determination my superpower. Yes, yeah, it is, though. <laughs> yeah. You're and still, amazing, but... And still, when I was um, a first-year graduate student, I thought of dropping out, like, six times, pretty seriously six times. And and so, it, and really just due to the imposter syndrome and feeling totally inadequate. And like you said, Sarah, not able to realize my own skill set necessarily. And so, you know, just even if you think you're being objective, the imposter syndrome inherently is not logical and not objective and it can counter, you know, undermine, you know, all your objective reasons of why you should stay in. And so sometimes that can, that can actually, you know, I think it really hit me in, in my superpower of grit and determination. I mean, ultimately my, it is my superpower. I stuck with it, but you know, I can see where, you know, that would be, it would have been very easy without a supportive uh, father at the time. And, you know, support friends like you, Sarah, that I might not have stayed. Um, I was going to ask Omoa whether you ever felt imposter thoughts when you were acting or did that always feel like kind of a growth mindset undertaking so that you didn't feel imposter thoughts? You thought I can get better with hard work or how did you feel? Very interesting question. I, you know, I certainly had challenging times in acting grad school. There were certain aspects, certain um, modes of acting that we were learning, you know, different Stanislavski method versus Lee Strasberg and different ways of acting. And some came a lot uh, more easily to me than others. But I don't remember ever feeling like, oh, I'm just not cut out for this. I should quit. Um, maybe I just don't belong in this field. And I think it's because there's a lot of, like, I kind of naturally, the creative art side of me comes quite naturally. Mm -hmm. um, I'm from parents who are both musicians, and one is a retired professor of music, and the other one runs his own performing arts company. And I've just been around the arts and performing all of my life. Uh, and, and then I you know, played a musical instrument and sort of fell into that. So when I went back to, when I went, decided to pursue acting seriously, it felt like almost coming back to roots. But at the same time, I've always loved the stars. And, you know, since the age of 12, decided I was going to be an astronaut, an astronomer, um, and was very, you know, determined along that path until I started to act. And then there was that, like, dual nature. But it is funny that to be honest, the, the sciences at a certain point, it felt like that was just going to be something that I, if I really wanted to do, I was going to have to work harder at that than I probably would if I decided to stay in acting and, and in the theater. There was never an issue of like, I mean, I, I certainly knew that I could be awesome at acting and still not get a job because there's a, you know, a lot of people who look like me in, in uh, casting offices in LA that want that job that you know, and there are not as many roles for african-american women in hollywood right now. yeah um there's yeah, more than so there used true. to be but there still aren't enough and mm. um but there was never a question of like i could be a good actor like i knew i i knew i could be good i knew i was good with astronomy there was that okay wait but i have to work really hard at this and uh, i don't know like, does that mean that i maybe am not good or that i couldn't be good because uh, I have to, like, study for these extra hours to get this grade, and someone in my office can, like, study for an hour and get that grade. Like, does that mean that I'm just, this isn't innately part of me? Like, it is 
them. So I used to think that that's where I think the imposter thoughts came up. It was like, it didn't seem like it was, I was necessarily born to be a scientist, but I loved, I loved doing it. And I loved looking at, and when I looked up at the stars and that was kind of my touchstone when things would get challenging, I would just go outside and look at the sky and I'd be like, oh, of course, how could I do anything else? Um, <laughs> you know, like who cares? Like, yeah, that, that, that class is tough or that thing, you know, but I can, I can do that. Like I, you know, I don't, I don't have another job on the side, like that, that's taking me away from that extra study time that I need. So I'll mm-hmm. just like put in that extra study time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is interesting that that thing that a long time ago too, uh, uh, my, my first astronomy professor at, uh, I went to a um, prestigious prep school, Phillips Exeter Academy, and I, I went there because they're, uh, they had their own observatory. <laughs> um, I was like, all right, I'm going. And the uh, instructor there, Christopher Harper, who was really someone who encouraged me from the age of 15 to pursue astronomy. Um, he, I remember him saying something like, if you love something enough, you're going to be good at it. Mm. Um, and I don't, I have to say that that, that hasn't always been the case for me, you know, like that oftentimes that, that would sort of set me up for thinking, oh, I'm not doing so well in this class. Maybe I don't love it enough. Maybe I should <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, he, he's a wonderful person. Um, I don't think he meant that, that quote to sort of uh, confuse me, but I think I've, I've, I've expanded beyond that to realize that if I love something enough, then it's, I may not be good at it, but I'm going to want to keep doing it. You know, yeah. it's just like how, how much I, how much time I, I spend doing something, how much time I'm willing to put into something that is proportional to how much I really care about it. Um, oh, I cannot say that I love astronomy every day. <laughs> I yeah, definitely. And, say, yeah. You know, it, it can be hard, but I think the one interesting thing that uh, Omawa is pointing to is also that we all aren't born astronomers and even, you know, the most successful Nobel Prize winning scientist isn't born a genius. You know, in in large part, it's just putting in hours and hours and around 10,000 hours or if you want to, you know, they say maybe true geniuses only have to put in 8,000 hours, my goodness, you know, compared to the 10,000 that the rest of us do, or if it's an area that we're not as strong, maybe we put in 12,000 hours, but it's still something that we can do, and that goes back to the grit and determination part of it, and also, like, yeah, I don't love, you know, what I do every day, but I love it enough to keep at it, you know, and so there's the balance of, you know, do I like having a co- error in my code where an L is a one or something like that. And it takes me two weeks to find. No, that's very frustrating <laughs> and it's just never fun. But you know, the, the overall, you know, reason I think why scientists are scientists is because we're curious and we're interested and, in, you know, we want to find out these answers um, to these overreaching questions. And, and that, at some level, keeps us interested to go through the kind of menial day tasks of debugging code or, you know, being frustrated with something. I had a question for you, actually, because I, I know you, and you said something to me a couple of years ago about your self-care routine, which really helped me personally, and I was wondering if you could go into it. It's, um, could you talk a bit about your 
uh, 10 minutes, 10 minute morning routine with the meditation and self writing. Oh, I don't know this. I'm excited. Yes. <laughs> so I, I like to start my day with at least 10 minutes of, of prayer and meditation. Um, and, you know, I'll say some, some personal prayers and then I'll just sit with a timer, put that on and uh, for 10 minutes. I'm working my way up. I think I had, was up to 15 at one point, and now I'm, I'm, I'm cutting it back down to 10. i got to go back up the other direction. Um, I like to get up to 20 in the morning because I think I just need that. What it does for me is it centers me. Um, and then the 10 minutes of writing afterwards allows me to get out whatever is on my mind. You know, you wake, I wake up, and sometimes some conversation from the day before or the pressing issues that I have to deal with that day or the you know, if I have a bunch of meetings, that's weighing on me. Being able to write it out, I just do free writing. One of my writing teachers is Natalie Goldberg, who's written a lot of books on the spiritual aspect of writing. And I just feel like it makes me feel lighter. And then I can just go about my day having spent that time kind of listening for guidance on whatever's going on in my life and then getting out the sort of my thoughts and, and whatever. And sometimes it's just stream of consciousness other times I'll pick a topic, um, like some of her books, she talks about, um, you know, write 10, 10 minutes, um, I remember, and then go, mm. or um, I am thinking of, or I don't remember, or, you know, doors, write for 10 minutes, you know, like whatever, just different topics. And yeah, sometimes it'll just take me to different places in my memory or whatever's going on that day, like. Sometimes it's just a grocery list of what I have to do, and then it turns into something else. But it really sets me up for, um, I feel like I walk out of my home kind of almost with a shield around me, protecting me from all those external influences that can kind of come at you during the day, unexpected things or, you know, pressing issues. I just feel like I'm much more better prepared to handle those when I've given myself um, time for myself in the morning. Yeah, I've definitely used that self-writing. I've tried. Okay, so I've tried to do the ten minutes in ten minutes. I'm not nearly as uh, disciplined <laughs> as you are. <laughs> so normally, what I do is I just bring my little journal around with me and I free write whenever I'm stressed. And it's, so I don't do it every day. I should probably. You know, I know you said that you had a drastic, you know, just reduction in the kind of underlying stress in your life after implementing this into your daily routine, and it is goal of mine to attain at some point to do what you do but I do find even just like the writing when I'm really stressed sometimes meditation doesn't calm me down I don't know why you know it's I maybe I'm just like my brain is too stressed to even appreciate the calmness of meditation you know and even if I'm successful in kind of doing the breathing exercise for 10 minutes I still feel very wired but something about that stream of consciousness writing of just putting whatever I fear or I'm feeling or even sometimes sometimes I write negative things often I'll try to force myself to write positive things and kind of just affirmations of you know I will graduate or whatever mm-hmm. it is you know at the time and that has been supremely helpful for me and and that was because of you so oh, god thank you and I and that's that's really the most important thing I think is to do what works for you meditation I don't always sit sometimes I lay down and when I'm meditating, very rarely is my mind ever still. Mm-hmm. My mind is just dancing all over the place. I hope one day that I will get to that place of, you know, at least a, a few breaths where I'm not thinking about anything. But so far, uh, I've, I've not gotten there. But I think it's like somehow, somehow 
and the striving, the kind of striving to non-strive, <laughs> uh, to not strive is, is the, the growth process for me. I, um, because I am, <laughs> I like to say, I am a doer. So people have to tell me, don't just do something, sit there. Mm-hmm. Because I would much rather fill my days with activity and, and take on, you know, tons of things. And, and But what that leads to is me feeling overburdened and resentful. And I've seen that borne out. And so I'm now really on a quest to do less, mm-hmm. um, to sit more, to hang out more, to just kind of hang out with friends without any sort of productivity expectation, you know, mm-hmm. to like hang out on benches Um and not necessarily bring a paper with me to read. <laughs> like just uh, last last year at UCLA, I sat on a bench for a while and watched pigeons, and <laughs> was amazed that these pigeons, like pigeons, have these gorgeous green coats around their neck that's like iridescent green, yeah. and it just it it really amazed me. And like watching sunsets and things like that, like that is very contrary to my inner makeup you know, which wants to always be productive. And yet it's not like I am super productive, but I always think I need to be mm-hmm. doing something and, and, you know, improving upon myself. But um, being able to, to just be more is something I'm, I'm working on now. And how do you find is a, an effective way to set those boundaries for yourself, you know, to limit your time, you know, at work or leave at a certain time or, you know, it limit... I don't know, time at a conference or even with friends, like how do you find is an effective way to set up your boundaries? So glad you asked that question. I was mentioning, I think I wrote an email to uh, the other Sarah that yeah. I just saw a webinar last night that had been, uh, it had occurred yesterday earlier um, called the art of saying no. And it was put on by the national center for faculty development and diversity. Uh, and I became aware of the center when I was a UC, I'm a UC president's postdoc fellow, and uh, they let us know about this center, and it's uh, was created by Dr. Carrie Ann Rockmore, who's a she used to be a tenure professor, and now she's directing this institute. And they put on webinars throughout the year, and they also have a faculty success program, which is a 12-week boot camp. Anyway, this webinar was incredible because it talked about ways that you can like the ways, the reasons that we don't say no, what holds us back from saying no. Mm-hmm. And I'm really, I'm really excited about it because it, she gave us some concrete expressions and things to be able to say, you know, buying time so that you can really figure out if it's something that you, that you want to be doing. But she, I think the, the main message was if we say yes to things that really aren't in line with, the way that we're going to be evaluated, whether it's a, as a graduate student, as a postdoc, as a faculty, you know, if we're not things related to the distribution of how we're evaluated, research, teaching, service, then we're essentially taking time away that we could be spending on those activities. Work-life balance as well, you know, personal things. And, and so really asking oneself, is this in line with what my mission is? Like creating a filter question. She talks about like, and I'm now going to be observing this, like, is this, is this request going to help me get a faculty job? And if it's not, the answer might well be no, you know, um, maybe it's, is this 
in line with the target audience that I'm serving in my outreach? And if the answer is no, then that answer might not be, you know, it might be no. Um, whereas there's a part of me that always wants to say yes to things. And when I'm able to say no to things that are not in my best interest at this time, it allows me to say yes to the things that are really, that are really meaningful and really important to me and really in line with my priorities and what I want my priorities, priorities to be at this time. Then people know that, you know, I mean what I say. Mm, that's a really lovely sentiment. Um, so I've been, and I've said no recently to some, some things that I would have loved to do, but I just don't have the time. And so one of the ways that I've been able to do that is writing down all the current commitments that I have. Because again, I'm a visual person. So if I look at that list and see, oh my God, that's what I'm doing. That this is when these things are due. Like I put it on a calendar. I did that recently before I, I got here for the summer. And I saw all the things I had committed to do. And I was like, wow, there is no time for this. Whatever the current the request at the time was. That made it a lot easier because, again, it was the facts. You know, the facts don't lie. You agreed to do this thing, and it's due there. And you're working on it here, here, here. When would you think you'd have time to do the other thing? So that's been helpful. And I also have accountability people. <laughs> like, there are times where I've texted someone and been like, okay, I'm going to sit here and write for an hour, and then I'm going to text you when I'm done. Mm. Um, or, and I'm actually in the process of... Uh, I'm going to get myself a no buddy. <laughs> and I'm, I've emailed a friend who, to be my no buddy. And so I'm like, when I have a request that comes in that might not be something that is in line with you know what my priorities are for the next six months, I'm going to make sure that I check in with that buddy before I respond. Um, and that buddy hopefully will reflect back to me my filtered question. Is this going to help you get a faculty job? <laughs> you know? So those are some of the ways that I think are helpful. But that, like, taking a pause when I'm given, when I'm, you know, when requests come in, taking a pause and before I respond, you know, or a, a day or however long I need has been helpful. And then just, like, involving my, my support network and making sure, like, you're scheduling that massage. Like, for instance, I just scheduled a massage yesterday for this weekend, and I need to be able to walk the talk. <laughs> like, those things are super important to me to make sure I, I take that, have that downtime for myself. So that's some of the things that help. Do you find it harder to set up the boundaries in a prof in a professional setting, like these, you know, requests on your time professionally, or setting up a work-life boundary? The professional ones are the hardest. Um, the leaving, yes, because you mentioned like leaving at a certain time. That one, that one also is hard because I've found sometimes I things will come up and or an email will come up and I'll leave later than I intended. But I've gotten better at that uh, and working less on the weekends, having at least one day where I don't do anything. And I'd like to move that up to, to the full weekend because I have talked to a tenured professor who does not work on weekends, does not work past five, and he got tenure. Mm -hmm. So it is certainly possible if I choose to continue in academia to have a faculty job and not work mm -hmm. 65 hours a week or 50 hours a week. Like I would like to think that it's possible to be to work 40 hours a week and have tenure, you know. So that, so, but the, but the professional ones, I think even most recently, have been the hardest getting asked to serve on an organizing committee for a mm -hmm. conference, which I know are things that are important and look great on a CV, 
but I had to say no to a recent request of that sort because I I, I saw the timeline for me moving and things like that, and, and I knew that if I said yes to that or serving on a review panel, amazing opportunity, right? And that I'm still like, oh my God, what, what did I do <laughs> saying no? Um, because that's how you learn to write great proposals, right? It's to serve on these review panels. But I also know that having served on one a long time ago, that it takes a lot mm-hmm. of time to read the proposals, write the, re- you know, the reviews. And um, I just didn't have the time. And again, mm-hmm. like writing, putting all of my current commitments on a calendar and the amount of time I was, it was going to take to do each of those commitments on the calendar made it really clear. Um, it was still challenging and very scary to say no because I, I want people to like me. You know, that's certainly something that comes up, that people-pleasing. Yeah. But I no longer see the benefit of that. In fact, I see only detriment from acting from that place of wanting to be liked. Um, whereas when I put my own needs first, people can trust that when I say yes, I mean it. And I'm not going to resent them. And I'm going to show up, you know, with integrity and with my whole heart mm. happily. Um, so I become a person that, that people know of as um, she takes care of herself and she she's 100%. She gives 100% when she can. Um, so I think we're nearing the end of our time. Uh, one thing that we tend to like asking our guests is... Um, What's the most ridiculous imposter thought you've ever had? <laughs> ridiculous meaning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, here it goes. <laughs> that I'm only here. I'm only here where I am today because I am uh, one of the precious few African American women. That's, that's not true. <laughs> <It's fun. laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Omoa. If folks are interested in your work and your thoughts about self-care, do you have particular places on the internet that they should go to learn more about it? Yes, please visit my website. It's variablestargirl.com. And I also have a website, uh, risingstargirls.org, which is the educational and outreach website um, where I post information on the workshops that I do, um, astronomy workshops for um, girls, middle school girls of color uh, using theater, writing, and visual art. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Dr. Omwa Shields. And on that note, let's go ahead and sign off. I'm Sarah B. I am Sarah R. And thank you for listening to Self-Care with Dr. Sarah.